So I'm going to do something. It's been three weeks since I've been here. So I'm going to read through all of Acts chapter 2. Because this is one day in the history of the church, but this is a fateful day. That's what I'm calling it, in in essence. One fateful day, this changes everything. So I'm going to be starting right at verse 1. And so I'll, I'll take brief interludes, real brief, as we go through this whole chapter. And then I'll focus in on the last part. So first of all, in the first four verses, we see the arrival of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, all the 120 disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, hurricane force, a sound like it, not the actual wind, but the sound. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The arrival of the Spirit, unusual to say the least, all right? So this happened and they're in Jerusalem. So then we have something else happen. We have a a crowd that's drawn and we see their response. So verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They would come back for the feasts of the Lord, the the Jewish religious feasts. Many who lived around the world, the known world of that time, would retire back to Jerusalem if they were devout Jews. So just so you know, that's who are there. But they were devout Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, these disciples of Christ, speak in his own language, his own particular dialect from around the world. It's unusual. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Remember, I told you, Galileans, they were considered the unclean, less righteous by Jerusalem Jews because they were in contact with the, with the Gentiles up there in, in the area of Galilee. And they're unlearned, the un, they're lower class. But they're, these, these devout Jews are saying, what is this? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These were not unknown languages. They were known languages from around the world declaring a specific message, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed. I don't blame them. Saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. Then we hear Peter's response, the first Christian sermon. Here we see him explaining what this this is actually happening. It's the arrival of the prophesied age of the Spirit. He goes to Joel chapter 2. We looked at that. And that was a prophecy that one day the Spirit's going to come and inaugurate a new age. Okay, so that's what he's going to hear. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
Here's his explanation. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Pay attention. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. For it is only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel in Joel 2, 28 through 32. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, the last days, the days where the spirit is poured out. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember, verse 21 is key because this is saying anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what does Peter say at the end of his sermon? How are they to be saved? They're to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying the fulfillment of this prophecy is in Jesus. Okay, so don't miss that. He's calling Jesus divine by doing this, tying this prophecy to Jesus. Okay. <coughs> So he explains what they hear, see happening, but then he goes on to vindicate Jesus, to prove that he's the divine Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, the one that they missed because they rejected him. Okay, so that's the next part of his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, affirmed, proven, attested to you by God, how? By mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What does that mean? Publicly. This wasn't in private. This wasn't I heard about. They saw it. It was his, his miraculous works were overabounding during his life and ministry. There was no mistaking it. What did they say was, this, was wrong with his miracles? Did they deny them? What, what did, how did they reject them then? They said they're demonic. Okay, don't miss that, right? So they're public. They were undeniable that it happened. They just sourced it to Satan. Uh, God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't by mistake. You thought you were in control. You weren't. God's been in control all along. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, by the Romans. You law people used lawless people to do your business. You, you colluded with the Romans. Who are the dirty ones now? Again, we can't miss that. That's what he's saying here. He's indicting the Jews for colluding with the Romans to reject the Messiah. That's what he's saying. But that's not the end of the story crucified and killed, right? Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And I'm going to prove it from the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's doing right here. For David says concerning him, he's quoting Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me. This is David writing. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he's quoting Psalm 16, saying, this is proof that there would be a death and resurrection. So is this passage about David? No, he says, he's going to explain now. This isn't about David. Listen, brothers, this is now Peter talking. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What did I tell you about that tomb? It was within walking distance of where he's preaching. It's in the city of Jerusalem. There was also another tomb. But see, David's tomb was full of what? David's bones. There's another tomb, an empty tomb that was within walking distance, a well-known tomb. Whose tomb was it? It wasn't Jesus' tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich member of the Sanhedrin. Yes, it became Jesus' tomb, but it was what? Empty. That's right. It was empty. Don't, Don't miss that. And his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet. Oh, so Psalm 16 is a prophecy is what he's saying. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath, 2 Samuel 7, with an oath to him, David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That's what Psalm 16 is talking about. And that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He's not dead and buried and cursed by God because he was crucified. He's exalted at the right hand of God. He turned, Jesus turned the tables on the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's not cursed, he's exalted. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, meaning Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's saying that Jesus is divine. He's the one who sent God's, sent God's spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens. David's in his tomb. But he himself says, and now he's quoting from Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in all of the Bible. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If Jesus is the Lord, who does, what does Joel 2, 32 point to? You have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Who do you have to call on according to Peter here? Jesus, he's the one who's at the right hand of the Father, the one who's reigning. Remember, Jesus used Psalm 110 in Matthew chapter 22 when he was debating with the Pharisees publicly in front of thousands and he stumped them because he quoted this verse saying, well, who is this person? This descendant of David who yet David sees next to the Father and he says to his his descendant, he calls him what? My Lord. And the Jews stopped, the Pharisees stopped debating because they were stumped. 
This is another, this passage saying, yes, this Jesus is, he's exalted, he's at the right hand of the Father, he's, he is Lord and he is Messiah, the ones you crucified, you rejected. Now imagine hearing this and you're devout Jews. You're not just run-of-the-mill Jews, you're devout, meaning you are devoted to the worship of Yahweh. That's why you're there in Jerusalem. You're there because you want to be close to the temple. You're there because you've done the sacrifice. This is the day of Pentecost. You're around. You're there. You heard this, and Peter has pulled no punches. Has he? Boom, boom, boom. You rejected him. You missed him. You crucified him. You colluded with those, those Romans. You called Jesus unclean. You're unclean. Wow. So what's their response? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What a great question, isn't it? What a great question. Now, the fact that they could ask that question means what? The Spirit's at work in them. And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit you see being poured out here, the Spirit, this age of the Spirit that was prophesied, I'm telling you, it's here now. You hear the tongues, you, you've heard the sound. I'm telling you, Jesus is the one. If you want this same Spirit, if you want to enter into this, this age of the Spirit, the new covenant age, you have to do what? Repent. And be baptized, what? In the name of Jesus Christ. Don't forget where he's saying this. He's saying this maybe a quarter mile, half a mile from where Jesus, he might have been on the Temple Mount itself when he's saying this. The Sanhedrin, the court where they sentenced Jesus, is on the Temple Mount next to the Temple. The court's right there. The Supreme Court of Israel's there. And he's saying, oh, the one you rejected... Oh, and by the way, you crucified him about 400 yards away. Remember, if you've been to Israel, this makes sense. The, the geography is so close. It's so tiny there. All this happened right there, and he's saying you have to be baptized. Why was that a, a significant thing to Jews hearing this? Were Jews ever baptized? The answer is no. Only non-Jewish Gentile converts to Judaism. If you were a Jew, did you have to be baptized to be immersed into the people of Yahweh? No. You had to, be, you had to have circumcision. That's what your parents did. But when John Baptist came along and Jesus came along, they said, okay, no Jews, because they themselves could say this, they were Jewish. Your lineage is not, it does not guarantee you anything. And he, they came bringing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter continues it here. You have to be baptized. That's an act of humiliation for them. To say, you know what, I'm not really saved until I believe in Jesus and get baptized. Whoa. Don't, yes, don't, don't miss this. We we're, we're at the other end. Most of us come from a Gentile background. And we, this is no big deal to us. But for them, they would be forsaking their lineage and their history, what they've been taught by doing this. That's that radical. This is a big deal. This day changed everything. Now, it's not new because it was prophesied in, in, in the, old, the Hebrew scriptures. But that's not how things were set up for them by the Pharisees. What kind of Messiah were they expecting? 
a political conqueror, and who, in their minds, were going to be the first ones to be congratulated by this Messiah. The Pharisees, they thought, and even the whole public thought that. Now, there were some who didn't agree. You read some of the writings. There was the, you know, the, the group that lived down in the, called the Essenes. They, they totally dis, disregarded, rejected the, the whole religious establishment because they saw the corruption at the temple. But most people saw the Pharisees. Yep, those are the ones. They're the priests. So, so what, when this happened, you know, this Messiah who fought against the Pharisees. Remember, again, I keep going back to Matthew chapter 23 now. Jesus pronounced seven woes, prophetic oracles of doom and condemnation on the Pharisees. Read Matthew 23, seven times. What's the seven a number of? Completion. Complete and total, utter condemnation of them and their teaching and anyone that would follow them. You say that you, you, know, you go all over to make disciples of yourselves, but I'm telling you, you may, you're an evangelist of Satan himself, is what he told them in one of the woes. So here's Jesus. He's the one who's being called to be believed upon as Lord and to be baptized into his name. Again, where did these baptisms happen? Right there. There's tons of mikvahs that have mikvahs, baptismal ritual baths that all Jews would, they would do a ritual cleansing before they went up on the Temple Mount, just as a ritual, not because, they, hey, we have to repent of our sins and, be, and become believers. It was just a ritual cleansing. I want to be clean before I go to church, all right? So there's all these mikvahs that you would just walk in and walk out of before you went up on the Temple Mount. I was there. I've seen a ton of them right there. So how could 3,000 be baptized one day? Very easily. It was right there. <laughs> and, and so we, we see this happening. So when they're doing this, they're going to be persecuted. Because don't forget, this new baptism is in the name of someone who was just crucified. It was only six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. Remember, don't forget the geography. Don't forget the timeline. This is, and this all happened in one day. This part right here, Acts chapter 2 is one day. This sermon I read it to you in about maybe 10 minutes because I stopped a few times. It could be read in five minutes. Now, it goes on to say he used many other words, okay? So, so pastors are allowed to speak more than five minutes, right? But, but it did not take long. This is a fateful day. It changed everything. For the promise, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Who is that referring to? That's the Gentiles. Okay. Now he says this, but does Peter totally understand what he's saying here? No. Acts 15 gives us good insight, as does Galatians chapter 2. The Jews, these Jewish Christians were trying to figure this stuff out too. They were learning as they were going on what this new covenant life, uh, what it would look like. They, they weren't perfect. They weren't, they weren't, we see it even later. We'll see it in Acts itself. There's... There's things that they have to learn. But it is, here's a promise. The Gentiles are going to be included. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What's that a picture of? The effectual, the, the gospel call, but then the effectual call. We talked about that just several weeks ago, uh, Pastor Lance. And with many other words, I like this. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay. We, on Sunday mornings, we have about 150 to 180, sometimes 200 in here. Imagine if we times it by 10 in one day. Okay, Christians, who's going to do the discipling? Pastor Lance, Pastor Chris? Well, we're going to play part of it, but who's going to do the discipling? Everyone raise your hand. All of a sudden, <laughs> thank you. you we beca- the church has got to be ready to do discipling. What if that happened here? I would love to see that. We'd be scrambling to catch up, but wouldn't it be great? We'd all learn. Whenever you, I don't know about you, but whenever I try discipling somebody, whether it's counsel or whatever, I learn a ton. Because the first thing I have to say is, man, do I have a lot to learn. But that's what happened here. It's an amazing day. This changed everything. But again, this is no one-hit wonder. This isn't just something that happened and that's it. The consequences, the ripple effect continues to our day. But let's look now at the passage we were, we were focusing on uh, last, last time I preached and tonight. So we see now the spirit-formed new community, this thing called the church that Jesus promised to build. Verse 42, and here's what they look like. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who were believed were together and had all things in common. I love the servant song. I love the songs you picked tonight because that's exactly what it's talking about. This kind of church, that's what we're singing tonight. Thank you for picking these songs. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 3,000 added in one fell swoop. But what what does verse 47 say? That's not where it stopped. And pretty soon we have another sermon a few chapters later, maybe it's two weeks later after this, where another, another several thousand were added in one sermon. I mean, church, you know, church experts, biblical scholars estimate that maybe in the first few years there were maybe 100,000 believers. Because what is the charge in Acts chapter 4? Why they were going to charge Peter and John? It says they've filled Jerusalem with what? Their teaching. Now, Jerusalem, during the, remember, during the, harp, or during the festivals, would get up to maybe a quarter million people. Regularly, it was about 70,000, 80,000 people. And they filled that city with their teaching. They filled the Conejo Valley with their teaching. One group of believers. Isn't that pretty cool, isn't it? But let's, let's again, let's, let's walk through. There's, there, this is the arrival of the Spirit. Let's not miss it. First of all, it was, there was that incredibly loud noise that drew the crowd. There were the tongues of fire. There was these, this 120 believers declaring the mighty works of God in human languages that they hadn't been taught. That's four things so far. The fifth thing, we have the first sermon by the Spirit changed Peter. Notice what it says, that Peter stood with the eleven. What did Peter do just a few weeks before? And he stood in front of a crowd. He shrank back from a servant girl. 
Hey, you're Axon. Are you one of his followers? The night that Jesus was being tried, what did Peter say? He called down oaths from God. I'm not one of his. Now he takes a stand. That's the evidence of the spirit. The spirit-empowered sermon by Peter. And we see the, the spirit working in the conviction brought about by the spirit to this sermon. Again, what produced this conviction and conversion was not Peter's oratory skills. It was the spirit. It was the spirit through a word-based preaching of the gospel. Remember, he exegeted three passages in this sermon. Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. We'll see it throughout that there, when there's sermons, there's constant reference to scripture. Scripture-based. He was declaring the inauguration of the Messianic age, the long-awaited new covenant that was fulfilled and brought by Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit used. Not Peter's oratory skills, what he preached. We see it in the conversion of 3,000 that added to the 120 already followers of Jesus. And finally, we see the Spirit, the evidence of Spirit in, in this new community and how they live together. They didn't just get one thing right. They were doing a lot of things right. And that's what we'll look at tonight is those characters. We talked about it some, uh, last time we preach, I preached, but we're going to look at it again a little bit more. All right. But on this fateful day, we see the evidence of the Spirit all over the place. We see the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost. Don't miss it. It says specifically in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, on the day of Pentecost... These feasts of Israel were, were to make them look back. That's what they did. Passover, what it looked back to for the Jews. Exodus, right? And the, and the angel of death passing over. If you had the blood of the lamb on your doorway, if you stayed inside, hid under the blood, all right? So it looked back, but then when Jesus came, it makes us look forward to when he returns. He is the Passover lamb. He fulfilled the past feast he's the one who looks forward so that one was fulfilled in christ this one the day of pentecost is being fulfilled here in this chapter it was the day of pentecost was a feast that was a feast of what was it also known feast of first fruits the first fruits of the harvest was to help them remember that they were coming into a land that they didn't have to plant they came in to israel and they were taken care of by, by god they, they just they just harvested what was already there and but here they, they were told in this feast, you're supposed to give back of your first fruits, the first part. Why would that be an act of trust? That's all you have so far, and you're praying more comes. But you're supposed to give it, it's a sign of trust in the Lord that he would give you. Because remember, the first fruits, you're giving your best of it. So the first fruits, it's being fulfilled here because it says the Spirit has come. And what is the first fruits of the day of the Spirit, of the day of Pentecost? The beginning of the church, these believers that are showing up right here, these are the first fruits. Isn't that cool? So it's being fulfilled now. The spirit has come. The new age has come. Now there's, a, there's another feast that hasn't been fulfilled yet. We won't talk about that now. I talked about it several, a couple months ago. Let's get back to this. But here's the deal. We see the spirit working here, but the spirit, that's how he works today. The promised helper, he's the one empowering. His, he empowers his people to proclaim his word, to declare the gospel. And as the gospel is declared, the spirit brings about salvation. Do you and your polished four spiritual laws, I'll throw that out, is that what's going to save people? 
No, it's your faithfulness to declare and open your mouth, but it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. Don't ever, that's why people say, I don't know what to say. I say, well, say what you know. Just go for it. Let God take care of the roads because you know what? He's the one behind all this anyways, right? We see this here. That's how he works. As the gospel is declared, the spirit brings about salvation in those hearing, those he enables to hear with faith, and those he enables to respond with a ready heart, those he grants repentance and faith. See all that? That's everything I'm referencing here is from scripture. We're supposed to be faithful to declare because we are the means for them to hear the gospel that God has decided, Romans 10, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless somebody preaches, declares? God has decided to use us to declare his message. Does he need us? No, but that's what he's chosen to do. And we're supposed to be faithful to declare. And who is the power that causes the change, the conversion of souls? Put it right there in the Holy Spirit's hands. But he says, hey, you guys, cooperate with me. Open your mouths because that's how he does it. Isn't that cool? That should give you total confidence. If someone doesn't respond and you've done your best, is it your fault that they haven't responded? Everyone say that. Shake, shake your head. <laughs> no, it's not. All right? But here, let me, before moving on and actually digging into the passage, the passage is very, it's really straightforward. So I wanted to stop here for a second, though, and looking at this. Because I don't want you just to know, hey, I, now I understand Peter's sermon. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Isn't that great? That's not the point of this passage. The point of this, the big so what, you hear me say that, what is the so what, right? The point is, it's not to inform you merely, but it's a call to repentance and belief on your behalf, on mine. And if you have repented and believed, praise God for that. Well, you're in the family. This is a great way to study, well, what should my gospel be about? Do I ever declare the gospel? This is a good, dec- good one to exhort you to that. But if you haven't, i got to ask these questions. Have you ever felt pierced to the heart like these people were because of your sin and Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection? Have you ever felt that? If you haven't, let's talk afterwards. Have you ever truly repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and received his forgiveness? Have you ever gone that far? If you haven't, let's talk. And, and this might be some more of you, Have you ever responded by publicly declaring your faith and being baptized? Ah, now I know some of you, we just got to enjoy that recently. Man, that was so fun. But some of you haven't. Some of you have been mistaught. Well, I got baptized as a kid. You know, I was sprinkled as as an infant. Folks, that's not you making an adult decision to be baptized. It's a matter of obedience. You need to be re-baptized. Now, you're not going to hell if you don't. But it's an, it's an act of obedience. And some of you, you got baptized and you know you weren't a Christian then. You've realized later on in life, you know what, I've become a Christian since then. That was what my, I, my parents talked me into it. And if you think you should be rebaptized because of that, do it. Right? What a wonderful, I mean, how many of you were at that baptism we celebrate at the Matthias's? I mean, I, I'm almost bawling the whole time because it's such a wonderful thing. We do, we've done baptism at the beach before. It's just so fun because people walking by going, what are those weirdos doing? And guess what? We get to tell them why. And it's such a wonderful, amazing thing to see people saying, yeah, I belong to him. I belong to Jesus Christ. But we're commanded to do that, folks. So if you haven't, let's talk. All right? 
So if you haven't done these things, hear Peter's call to repent, but then hear Crispin's zeal get in your face as your brother, all right? Repent, believe, and if you haven't been baptized, let's do it. Let's get her done. Okay, so let's, let's keep going. So we're on one fateful day here. It's, so we, we get to now look at the, the characteristics and commitments of the church, all right? Because we, here we are 2,000 years later standing uh, on their shoulders, so let's look at what this new community looks like. So the life of the new, new community, this church, they, first of all, they were a devoted community. Okay, when we use that word devoted, we mean they were intensely just wanting so desperately to learn and to grow. They were, they were devoted. Okay, they, they, wanted, they wanted this, they, they had a persistence. They, they wanted to persevere in knowing something. And they were united in their devotion because it doesn't say, and one was devoted. It says they were all devoted. So there's a, 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 a group that was helping each other. Have you ever been with a group of believers that's all fired up and you get all excited too? Right? There's nothing better than that. Like when we sing and we sing loud, it makes you want to sing louder. Right? But to, so they're unified in their devotion. They were committed to learning and to living together. And also they were humble in their submission. Who are they submitting to? They're submitting to Christ, but to the apostles who were teaching. So they were coming under their authority. Don't miss that. That's a hard thing to do because what kind of men were these men? For three years, what, what's the picture of the, in the Gospels about these 12 men? The ordinary guys and sometimes chickens? Doubters? Like you and me, maybe? Yeah, it is very ordinary. That's exactly right. But they were the ones chosen by Jesus to, be, to make, you know, build the foundation of the church of their teaching. And so they were going to submit to them. Don't miss that. There's that idea of submission. It's so important. So they were a, a, a unified to, to the doctrine, and they were unified in their submission. So let's, let's look at, the again, there, there's four qualities, and we talked about two of them, but I'm going to rehash that again. It's a, I call it a defined community. This is a community like no other, but here's the four things. First of all, to the apostles' teaching, which is doctrine, learning. They were a learning community. Matter of fact, what does disciple mean? It means a learner who is a follower of a rabbi who's there to learn and imitate that rabbi. They were a learning community. They were also a loving community. They, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's doctrine. They were put, devoted to the fellowship. That's a, that means a fellowship that's a, a loving community. It's not just, hey, let's go grab coffee afterwards. It's much more than that. They were also a, a worshiping community. What is, where do I get that from? Well, they, they broke bread together. What is that? What? The Lord's Supper. That's an act of worship. When we do that, you guys, that's an act of worship. We'll get to that again. In a second here. But then the final thing was that they were, they were a praying community. It says, and they were devoted to the prayers. All right, so prayer was the key. And we'll talk about what the prayers are, uh, what it's referring to here. But those are the four characteristics of, of this early church. Okay? So first of all, uh, doctrine or learning. The teaching of the apostles is what they were devoted to. Again, it's not scripture plus the world's models or the world's wisdom, it was they were devoted to scripture, right? They were devoted to the Hebrew scriptures because that's all they had, and then what the apostles were teaching, reteaching scripture, and then just declaring how to live out this new covenant, this new covenant life. Remember, when I say new covenant, remember, the Jewish thinking about that was what? 
Okay, it was the sacrificial in one sense, but it was this, remember, the, the promised new covenant was going to be the spirit put in them. A whole new kind of people. No longer would you need external law, but the law would be written on your hearts. It's a whole new way of living. The spirit being poured out. It's a new way. And so, again, it, you, we have tastes of it all over the Old Testament, but they have to explain what that means. What does it look like? Do we still have to be Jewish in how we live things out? Because remember, these are Jews. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Eli. So they're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. It was a devotion to a particular teaching found in Scripture, focused on Christ. Remember, what did Jesus say uh, that the, the Spirit was going to help them do? The apostles specifically. He was going to, the, the Spirit was going to bring to remembrance all that he had taught them. Okay, so they were going to be the repositories of Jesus and his teaching. They were the ones. They were the authoritative ones. And it was a submission to the teaching. And when I mean submission, it means to have the authority over their lives. That teaching was to have authority. It wasn't, again, it wasn't just data. It's how are we going to live? And it was a commitment to obey what is learned. In, in the Great Commission, right, Go, therefore, into all the world doing what? You're making disciples, right? But doing what? Baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe or keep. Another word, obey. How much? All that I've commanded you. Boy, that's, that's quite, a, quite a standard, isn't it? But that's what, he, that's what they were making. Uh, this, that the Great Commission is what the apostles were to call people to as they were followers. They were to submit, to learn and obey what they were learning. So the first characteristic of, of this church was a joyful and intentional listening to the word preach, taught, and applied. Again, it was not just, hey, folks, memorize this creed about Jesus. Not against creeds, but that's not what they were teaching them. There were certain hymns and poems and certain things, maybe we'd call a creed, that we see in the New Testament that were probably used by the early church. But don't think that that's all it was. It was a whole way of life and living. Okay? And again, that's what we do, what we do in our various formats here at church. That's, that's where we get our, our passion for the word from. We have to be a church that's based on the word, that teaches the word. Because, folks, if I'm just giving you some, oh, here's something I learned. Here's a story for you. You know, just out there and give you seven steps to a better you. Why would you, why would you need to listen to me? There's like a billion voices out there with all their opinions. It means nothing. Because all they are are what? Opinions. We need God's word because that's what transforms our thinking, renews our mind. It's the, it's, the, it's the scalpel, according to Hebrews chapter 4, that does surgery on our hearts, that judges the thoughts and intentions of our inner man and, and conforms us to the image of Christ and gives us light for our path, the ability to think clearly, to see in a, in a foggy, confused world. I'm re referencing Psalm 19. You guys, we need the word. And we need to be a church devoted to the word. So we have classes all over the place about one, what is one that being taught, how do you, you know, can understand God's word better? What's being taught? Grasping God's word. I love that book. Went through it in my master's classes. Great book. What other classes are we teaching here that are word-based? Fundamentals of the faith. Absolutely. 
going through the, the big ideas of Scripture and so we can categorize them and figure out the Christian life. What's another one? Yeah, the one I teach, discipleship counseling. How can we help people in trials in every area of life, whether it's marriage and family conflicts, anger, depression, uh, anxiety, fear? We, we hit on everything. Why? Because the Word hits on everything. The Word has given us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, so that we may escape the corruption that is in the world due to the flesh. Isn't that cool? Folks, we have that. But that's what they were doing, and we need to keep doing the same. So that's the first thing. What? Adventure Club. Club. Every area. That's what we teach the kids. That's what we go through Scripture with them. We don't give them donuts and let them play. We get in the (laughs) Word. Now, do we play? Yes, we do. (laughs) That's the first thing. The second thing is fellowship. And they were devoted to the fellowship. And we see later, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were trying to take care of anyone as any had need. Here's the deal. The learning must be played out in a community. We learn together and we live together. I just love this, the servant song, right? We are, verse 2, we are pilgrims on a journey. We're together on this road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. Isn't that cool? I love when you're singing that. I'm like, oh, here's part of my sermon right here. But that's that the fellowship again, when we think of fellowship again, I didn't grow up in the church, but I grew up around the church. And when I became a new Christian, I heard this word thrown around. But a lot of it just looked like having coffee and just kind of hanging out and talking. Is that fellowship? Okay, good. Okay, I didn't want you to think that I was going. We don't dismiss that. That is certainly some great conversations and great counsel is given over coffee just hanging out. <laughs> Especially coffee because it's biblical to drink coffee. He brews. You open the door. That was your fault, Wes. <clears throat> but it's true. That's, that is certainly part of fellowship, but is that all that fellowship is? According to what we see here. No. According to, why would, how would they be, uh, why would they be needing to sell stuff? Okay, there's needs, but why were there needs? You're right. But why were there needs in this community in Jerusalem uh, after, after this day for the weeks following? What was happening? Okay, they're being persecuted. How? Because you're right. I want us to keep thinking of this through. Remember, this is very, remember, think of what's happening there in Jerusalem. Ah, kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of their families. Well, they didn't have a welfare system back then. So if you're kicked out of your family, what do you do? Well, that's what the new community was doing. Now, this wasn't, remember I talked about this is not a, hey, we need to be a a, a Soviet-type communal organization, right? We see later that people had homes. Right, and and they it, we even see that you know, when the apostles were talking to Ananias and Sapphira, they said you didn't have to sell everything, you didn't have to sell anything at all. You just lied to the spirit by saying you had, and you but you kept back. You were just trying to lie and gain status in the church. That's why they got busted. So this isn't hey, you have to sell everything, okay? Uh, what was Lydia in Philippi? What was she? Seller of what? Purple. That means she was rich. That was someone who was very wealthy. Her home was where the church started there, okay? But she, didn't, she was never commanded to sell everything. Matter of fact, the disciples, Jesus, was funded by who? Some wealthy women, it says. They, they, were, they were called disciples. You can read that. I'll show you proof later. But all that being said, <laughs> as far as the fellowship was, is that it was a life together. It was pilgrims helping each other along. Just like I literally have that in my notes, and here it is in the song we sang. 
But again, they were united around a common love for their Lord and for one another. They were seeking to meet needs. Okay, Alexander Strauch, was that two weeks ago? Yeah, that was two weeks ago. I was gone last week. So I love it. How many of you have even read part of his book, that little skinny white book, 15 Traits of Love? It was great. It, you guys read it. Because, folks, that's when we hear 1 Corinthians 13, where have you heard that most commonly quoted? Weddings, right? Folks, that's not for weddings. That is for regular Christians. It's written to the Christians at Corinth. Now, can it be weddings? Of course. But, folks, that's the kind of love we're supposed to be showing in our common relationships right here. Real fellowship is characterized by love. It's all the one another's, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens, confronting one another, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Just keep going down the list. That's what we're supposed to be characterized in real fellowship. That's what it's supposed to look like, not an idea. Folks, we're really good as Western thinkers, Greek mentality, that's our background in the West, to think about ideas but not get to the earthy applying of it. So have you ever opened your home to somebody that's not one of your friends and just had them over to eat? What's that called? Hospitality. Matter of fact, you can't be an elder if you don't show hospitality. But it's called for, of all Christians, we're supposed to be hospitable. Have you, I just go down all the one another's. Those are good self-evaluation I know I, I do that a lot, but we're supposed to do that, right? We're supposed to say, here's what it says, now what about me? Am I doing it? Because here's the deal. Each one of you brings your, which you bring things to the church, don't you? Your gifts, your abilities, your talents. But here's the deal. You also bring your obedience. The more you obey, the stronger you are, and you make the church stronger. That's Ephesians 4.11. You bring Many things to the table, but if you are actively in sin, what do you bring to the table to the church? You weaken the church, right? So when we're looking at these components, we're supposed to say, Lord, how can I grow? Because I want to grow so I can help the church, and I want to be part of the church so they can help me grow. So together we can be strong. And folks, I say that all the time, don't I, folks? But here's the deal. Our culture is not getting better now, I'm not saying the sky is falling, but you know what? The sky might be falling. <laughs> I mean, just pay attention to the news. Pay atten- I mean, if you're involved in the school system at all. I just had to take foster care classes because we're trying to adopt my nephews in the foster care system in North Dakota. And some of the stuff we were being taught, it's like, whoa. Taught by the state on what, it, what you can and can't do as a foster parent. Folks, it's, it's, our culture has changed dramatically in just the last 20 years, 40 years. And those of you who are older, you'd say, oh my goodness, you should have seen it. I mean, it's, there are some good things too, don't get me wrong. But we have to realize the church has got to be the place that you invest your life because this is where we grow together, we help each other, we worship God to, together, and we have a testimony together to this world. I'm getting ahead of myself in the notes. So let's get back to the notes so I can finish this out. <laughs> So again, this fellowship is supposed to be full of the one another's. And again, a fellowship not defined by what we see at the YMCA or the parent PTA, whatever club you've ever seen, that's not what defines what the church is supposed to be in real fellowship. 
It's supposed to be what we, it, it is supposed to be what we see here in Scripture and how they love each other and serve each other and grow together. That servant song is a great one. It's a great one. Serving each other. So that's the second component. The third, they were characterized as a worshiping community. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper, to the breaking of bread. And later it says, too, we see this idea of worship. Where it says, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And day by day, later on, they were attending the temple together. What was the temple for? They weren't picking up their post, their, you know, their mail. It was for worship, public worship. And they were faithful Jews going to worship where you're supposed to worship. And breaking bread, communion, in their homes. And then finally it says they were praising God. So let's just talk about worship. First of all, their worship was centered on Christ, and that was experienced in communion. What is communion about? When we take the bread, that's focusing on Christ's person. Because he said, the bread, it says, this is my body. Well, what is this whole body about? Well, he was the God who became a, taking on the form of a servant. He was the incarnation. That's a, that's a focus on his person, right? Him, him able to represent us. Then it says, and when he said this is, when he took the wine, he says, this is my blood, okay? That's on, that focuses on his work. What did he do when he went to the cross? He shed his blood. That's what covers our sin. That's the atoning sacrifice. That's the propitiation, all right? So communion is a, it's a community's testimony to Christ's person and work. It's an act of worship. Every time we do it, it's an act of worship. That's a reminder. It's a declaration of the gospel, God became man to die for our sins, but it doesn't, that com, when we start reciting communion, it doesn't end there. He says, do this as often, remember, do all this stuff as often as you do this, and remembrance of me, until he comes. So it's a forward-looking meal. It's evangelistic. It's evangelistic. The king is going to return. So this act of worship, this meal, it united believers around his work, reminding them and teaching them in a multi-sensory way. I'm teaching, your, your, what sense are you using? Hearing, right? But when you take communion, what are you doing now? Senses, really? So when Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good, this is actually one of those things to remind you. It's just a, a teaching meal that uses something else. It's something special. When we sing, does music have a different way of teaching us? It affects our, it hits our affections is what it's called. It does. It moves us in a different way. So we need to make sure the songs we sing are what? Word-based, biblical. <laughs> so important. The Lord's Supper is an exhortation to perseverance, to joyful perseverance until he comes. We do this, you know, when I became a Christian around 20, and I started taking communion, I thought the Lord was going to be coming soon. This is back in, you know, 1986. And I'm like, whoa, gosh, look at all these things. I read Revelation. I'm like, whoa, feels like it is now. Well, here we are, what, 30 years later? So how often am I supposed to be taking communion? Just keep taking it. When is Jesus going to come back? When he decides. So let's just be faithful in the meantime. But that meal was an act of worship. But also, too, we see later on their other worship. Their worship was, was characterized by a reverent awe. This is when awe and awe came upon them all. It was an awed community, A-W-E-D. They have an awesome God, and we have an awesome son. They had a healthy reverence for God, for his power and his glory. 
And there was awesome displays of God's power through who? The apostles, right? But don't forget, whose pattern were the apostles following? Christ. Christ would teach, and then he would do miracles. Look, it's all the way through the book of Matthew. I preached through Matthew a few years ago, and you just see it. All these amazing miracles, and then he would teach. Or or it's the other way around. Like the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, they were amazed at his teaching. What, What does he go on to do? He starts doing all these amazing miracles. And they're like, what is going on here? And that's the whole point. They're doing the same thing, following the same pattern. It says that wonders were done. That was the effect on the people. The signs, these miracles weren't just done to do them. They were a sign pointing to something. They had a point to authenticate their teaching that Jesus is the man. And it wasn't just a few miracles. I mean, again, if you read, when we get through Acts, you'll see that there's times that there's so many miracles being done. It was so powerful. They would take, you know, items of clothing from the apostles and it would heal people. It was just, guys, don't forget, we're supposed to pretend like we're there. Imagine that. Imagine seeing this happen. What would you do? Be going, wow. Their worship was characterized by awe. Their worship was public. They attended the temple together. They had a, remember, they went as a group. It was a public community worship. They were also worshiping in private. They went house to house as well. Their, their worship was not just on Sundays. That's why I keep saying Sunday's not enough, folks. We need it more than that. If you only take an hour dose of Bible a week versus the hundreds of hours, or I don't know how many hours in a week, of TV and radio and other people's advice, oh, it's, it's going to kill you. you need, we need more than this. We need a worship that's more persistent, more consistent. And then the final thing is that they were praying. They were a praying community. They were devoted to the prayers. And again, this is reference to the Jewish prayers. There was a, they had a time of day when they were uh, to hours of prayer in the morning and evening, during the morning and evening offerings. And, and so we even see them in the very next chapter. We'll see this. They're actually in the temple during one of the times of prayer. So they were faithful Jews, but they were devoted to prayer because of what prayer was. Prayer wasn't an act you do, oh, it makes me good with God. Prayer does something. It's a declaration of absolute dependence on God. We pray because we can't do it all. We need his what? We need his help and his power. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his help. Prayer says that we have a sure hope in the future, even if we can't figure it out. Why? Because of who I'm praying to. Prayer says that we trust in these promises and this, it, that we will be forgiven and adopted in the family and one day brought to heaven. That's what prayer says. Prayer says that we have a longing for, we want to see his kingdom be built. They were devoted to the prayers. And again, we have samples of prayer all the way through Acts. Acts 1.14 at the very beginning. And all these were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 1.24. And they prayed when they had a big decision to make. Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And we go on. Do we have other examples of prayer in scripture? Come on, folks. Jesus, what was it called? Okay, is it called the disciples' prayer, right? But do we have the Lord praying at another point? Several places, right? What is John 17? That's actually Jesus' prayer. But we have another example of him praying too. In Garden of Gethsemane. He had a regular habit of prayer. What was it? 
Where? Yeah, either on the mountain or just getting away private. We have his example. We have Paul. I mean, read all the New Testament letters. And here's my prayer for you. Well, what is that? Well, that's Paul's prayer. So, folks, uh, prayer is so important. The church was characterized regular, corporate, and individual, devoted prayer. It was a dependence on God and his power and purposes for the church. So that's, that was, those are the four ingredients, so to speak. All right, so let me just remind you of, of this summary statement here at the end, of verses 46 and 47. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, they had a public testimony, and breaking bread in their homes, they cared for each other and wanted to be with each other. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad, what does that mean? Joyful. They were a community that it was unmistakable. They were joyful. Praising God and having favor with the Christians. What does it say? All the people. What people? The people who saw them worshiping in the temple together and living. Now, the persecution hadn't happened yet. The big one, we'll see it in a few chapters. But look at this testimony. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is just evidence of God's work. The church kept growing. It couldn't be stopped. The spirit was moving. So we've seen the character of the church, glad and generous hearts, praising God, loving each other, serving each other, doing whatever it takes to meet needs. We see the commitments to learning, to, to fellowship, to worship, to prayer. Now I say all this to, to ask ourselves, remember I said this, what you bring to the church is how the church will either be stronger or weaker. Right? So we, because we say we, we have these commitments. And folks, I mean, the word of God, people, that's, these are the commitments of our church. But we need to get better at it. Well, how do we get better at it? New programs? No, it's the same people who are more committed to being people who are changing and growing. Because as you grow in, in your faith and in your love for the Lord and, and you're growing in obedience, guess what that does for the rest of us? I have, I have a young couple living in my house that just moved in a month ago. They moved here from Texas, and they're looking to find jobs in the area. It's my daughter. She just got married in September, and her new husband, and they're with us for a while. A while. <laughs> but we love it because here's a young couple that wants to just grow in their because they have just a new relationship as husband and wife. But watching them in this have the habits that they're doing, you know what's done for Renee and I? What do you think it's done for me and my wife? We've been married 27 years. What? It does. It's so encouraging. I, it's, just, it's not like, oh, I wish we felt that way about it. No, I love my wife more than they love each other. <laughs> but here's the deal. Their, their desire to grow is infectious. You ever been around people like that? Where they just, you just want to be around them. When I was an intern at a church just out of college, still a new believer, one of the guys on staff, he was, gosh, in his mid-70s getting ready to retire from the church. He was the pastor who did visitation. And I went with him one day as an intern to watch, and we, we went to the hospital. And wow, sitting there talking to these people, and then he would pray with them, and I, and I felt like I was going before the throne of God. And he was the kindest, most gentle man, but boy, how he prayed. He meant it. And the God he prayed to was his God and his Father and his Savior. And oh, wow. And I said, you and I, what I said about that? I want that. 
So folks, we need to be in a church that's so committed to each other, that loves each other. You know, we'll be closer, we'll be closer like I'm closer to some of you and not to others because we don't, you know, you can't, the larger the group, it's hard to be close friends with everybody. But if you're not connected to anybody in the church, what should that tell you? Or, or they failed the church. It could be one of those teams. But is that the end of the story? Absolutely not. Why? Because we have new programs we're coming up with? Why? When does God start blessing? As soon as we start obeying. When will God start giving us the help we need? As soon as we start asking for it. You don't receive because you don't ask. His grace is available. So if you're not connected to the church, well, let's talk. Maybe we failed you. Maybe you have reached out and we haven't done what we need to do. Or maybe it's the other way around, right? Or maybe it's some weird combination. That, that's, it doesn't matter. Let's get you more connected. Because we have been put by God in each other's lives on purpose. This isn't by accident, folks. We are part of the church God has put together for his glory and for our good. To bring him glory. I have some other stuff I could read, but we'll end with that. I mean, that's, I think that's enough. That, you know, it's amazing what God did in this early church. But is this something that's so foreign that we can't experience? I'm not talking about exactly how they did it, but these elements? I don't think so. You know who my closest friends are on this earth? Who I'm most tied to? Besides Renee and my, my physical kids? It's the church. We, we don't have a big extended family. We're like the only Christians in our family. You know who our real support system is? I'm looking at them. My closest friends of years and years are the Christians who I know that I'm going to spend eternity with. And I know if there's a problem, you know who I call first? Not my family. I call these close, dear brothers in the Lord because I know we have a bond that goes beyond blood. Isn't that amazing? And if you don't have that, let's talk, right? Let's, let's figure out how we can help you uh, experience that. And, and, you know, in real tangible ways, okay? So let's pray, and then we're not going to get into our circle. I've gone way too long. I used many other words like Peter, but let's pray, and then we'll do just, uh, uh, you know, let's just do that now, as a matter of fact, before I just close in prayer.